Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, we are going to be, as you just heard, we're going to be in Luke chapter one. And feel free to make your way over there before we get into it. What I want to take a brief moment to do is to invite you to join us for Vision Night right here at a Providence Road campus on Tuesday night. Uh, Listen, if you're a member, you already got an email about this. I know you've told me how much you love getting emails, so we try to send you as many as we can, and one of them included that invitation. Uh, But if you're not a member yet here at Mercy Church, but you feel like, man, this is my church. I'm feeling like this is my church home. I just want to extend that invitation. It's a little bit of a member meeting, but you're welcome to join. Here's what we're going to do on Vision Night this Tuesday at 7 o'clock. We're going to look back and see what God has done, and we're going to pause and celebrate it. Uh, It's good for God's people to be thankful for what he has done and to praise him and celebrate. And we're going to take some time to do that. And then we're going to look ahead to what we believe, the elders believe God has called us to in 2024. I'll present the budget to you for 2024 and some things that we got planned that I'm pretty excited about. And then we'll pray and ask for God's blessing on our year ahead of us. All right. Looking back, looking ahead. I hope you will join us. Uh, If nothing else, maybe the last enticing thing I'll say is we will have delicious desserts and free swag for all who show up. Okay, so uh, come, we'd love to have you. With that said, um, Luke chapter one, our theme this year for Advent, the arrival, our theme is hope. And I'll go and tell you, here's what's gonna happen today. Today, we're gonna see hope come to someone who has run out of hope. We're gonna see hope come to a guy who, even though he had followed God his whole life, he still, despite that, felt disappointed by God. He felt unheard, maybe overlooked. And it's been that way so long that when God finally answers him, he doesn't respond positively. He's, he kind of digs his heels deeper into his bitterness that he's been standing in for so many years. And then God in his kindness is going to break him of that pride. And in the surrender of this man's deepest desire over to the Lord, a man named Zechariah finds hope. Look, today's passage is not all that complicated, but it is really challenging. So I want to start by posing a rather common question, but I want you to really consider it, think through it. What is your deepest desire? Maybe another way to say it is, what's the thing that you have been asking God for? What is it? And as we're going to see this story unfold, there's going to be a little bit of a challenge here. Will you trust God enough to surrender that desire to him? And however he answers you, will you trust that he's still good? That's what we're going to see unfold today. We're going to walk through this narrative. Along the way, I'm going to draw out about five truths for just how God works on our deepest desires. And we're going to see the same, the big picture, like, you know, I'll try and give you one takeaway that you walk out of here with each weekend. And the big idea today is the same one we saw if you were here last week as we talked about Mary. And it's simply this, if you'll surrender 
your deepest desire to God, you will receive back joy. Look, our, our author, Luke, is intentionally opening his gospel with these two scenes between Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah. And just what he's doing is he's opening our eyes to the grandeur of God right out of the gate to see, man, God's got so much that he's planning and doing and working. And we're seeing how finite we as humans are. And when we surrender our desires, our circumstances, all of it to this great God, what we don't receive, we don't receive back panic. We don't receive back anxiety. We don't receive back bitterness of unmet expectations. That's actually what we find when we try to hang on to our desires and try to control them and their outcome. But when we surrender those desires to God, we find peace, hope, and joy. That's what I want for you here at Christmas, but it only comes on the other side of, am I going to actually surrender that to God? Get in the text and we'll see it. Here we go. Verse five. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abiah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. This is our first narrative in the gospel of Luke. He wants us to meet this priest and his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, if you were here last week, is the faithful friend of Mary. And now she and her husband are kind of taking center stage today. The simplest explanation, if you're a little bit newer to church that I can give for a priest is a pastor, okay? It's not like one-to-one exact, but in short, he would go to God on behalf of the people and then he would go to the people and speak on behalf of God, okay? So a little bit one-to-one. And then you've got Elizabeth, who is, you see in that text, from the daughters of Aaron. That means she descends from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother, which is the tribe of priests. So what you've got here is kind of like Luke setting them up as people with a, that's what I say, like a holy pedigree, okay? Like think, best way I can say it is like Billy Graham's great-granddaughter marries a pastor. That's what you got right here, okay? Something like that. Verse six, both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. They weren't just people from good stock or whatever. They were genuinely holy people. They followed the Lord. Luke even paints with a broad brush in summarizing their lives. I mean, certainly they weren't perfect. There's only one who was ever perfect. His name was Jesus. But if you had to summarize them, they were righteous in God's eyes. And yet, despite having a great background, living great lives, they had this deep, unfulfilled desire. Look at verse 7. They had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. I want you to see this couple that probably is living a more godly life than you or me. I mean, I don't know your story, but that's kind of the way Luke is setting it up. Could not conceive, which means they tried well along in years. They tried for a long time. You know, they've been praying about this. Like think of their circumstances. You got Zechariah, the priest who's there. These people keep coming to dedicate their children to the Lord. How many times has he spoken Psalm 127 over them and said, listen, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full all the while his is empty. Can you imagine that heartache? How many times have Elizabeth's friends gotten pregnant, had children, maybe even grandma age now? And then there's Elizabeth. Tell me if this rings at all familiar to you. Faithful to God, but feeling like she's been denied his blessing. And not just any blessing, like a fundamental blessing. Like she's created to carry a child and she can't. If you've dealt with infertility, you know the feeling. You feel broken or betrayed or both. If you've ever felt, and this, it hits deep. Have you ever felt like you've been faithful, but denied? God, I've been faithful to you for a long time. I've done my part. I've tried my hardest to follow you. This one good thing, why are you denying me? 
I know, I know we're early in the sermon, but if that's you, I want you to lean in. What I want you to see with Elizabeth is God's delay had nothing to do with her merit. It had to do with his mercy on them and on the world. It had to do with a plan way bigger than the two of them. And I need you to hear this this Christmas because maybe God's timing has been a source of bitterness for you. Here's what I want to say. When it comes to your deepest desire, to all of our desires, God's timing is about his mercy. It's not about your merit. Look, I do believe, I will say, I do believe God blesses obedience for sure. He set up the world so that we flourish as we obey his command under his rule. We're blessed by that. Your faithfulness to him is not in vain for sure. But that your faithfulness to him doesn't mean you earn his yes to your prayers. Because if anyone could have earned it, it would have been these two. So if you feel faithful but denied, and so there's no joy, I want to encourage you to receive his timing as mercy, not some unpaid debt that he owes you. And on the other side of that, some of you are like, yeah, it makes sense that God has said no to me about this because of how bad I've been in my life. His denial is probably just just punishment. Listen, his timing is not because he is punishing you because you haven't performed well enough. After all, he came to the Apostle Paul years after the Apostle Paul, listen, had been slaughtering Christians for a while. And God still came and showed him mercy. By the way, if that's a newsflash way, the Apostle Paul used to kill Christians, you got to check out the book of Acts. It's awesome. All right. That's for another, another Sunday. But here's the deal. God orchestrates events throughout scripture so that he and he alone is the only one that can get glory for whatever transpires. But what is clear, he never abandons his people. And when he says no, that's always his mercy too. So whatever that deepest desire is, first I want you to know that just because he hasn't given it to you doesn't mean he's withholding something he owes you, nor does it mean you're being punished. His mercy and his timing, I should say, is about his mercy, not your merit. I've been feeling this, I'll give you my own like professional struggle with this. I've had it in personal space too, but professionally, this has been, my struggle with this has been around Mercy's facility situation. Pretty much our entire time I've been your pastor, which is also the entire time we've been at church, we've been looking for our next home at one campus or another. And yet never once has the Lord delivered a facility on my timeline. We got plenty of good people right now trying to find the next facility for our Providence Road campus. And I'll get in my head in both of these lanes. Sometimes I feel like I had a pretty good week, you know? I'm like, come on, God, how awesome have I been? You owe me a better facility. Come on, I've been so faithful to you. And then other weeks I'll be like, yeah, this makes sense. I'm a garbage pastor. Like <laughs> I've done so many things, wrong decision after wrong decision and blah, 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 right? I'm like, yeah, that's my, yeah. Y'all, when I actually stop to look back, by the way, this is why I think vision night, things like this are so important because people of God need to stop and look back. Because when I look back, man, I can tell his timing is about his mercy, not my merit or yours. He's doing something in the waiting. I just want the answer. I don't like waiting, right? But he's doing something in that waiting. Because I'm thinking about like the building I'm standing in right now was gifted to us as a young church what else can I say when I look back and consider that? That God is faithful and merciful. And I know the one who was faithful will always be faithful. Let's keep going. Verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, okay. See, start at verse 9. It happened. 
Okay. That is author, in the, when that comes up in the Bible, that's always author shorthand for God orchestrated the lot so that the individual will be selected for the assignment. Okay. In other words, it happened, never just happens. Aside from God working his plan, that's how it happens. You didn't just happen to be in church this morning. Your friend didn't happen to just invite you this week. God didn't happen to make the bottom fall out of the skies and downpour on you as you were coming to church this morning. All of that was a part of his plan. Here's what I'm learning. The longer I walk with God, the more I see like what felt like it just happened was actually the kind hand of God moving his mercy towards me for my benefit. Verse 10, at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Of course he was. Remember last week, angels, we said, are imposing warriors of light. They show up a lot in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And when they show up, every time they show up, people get terrified. They're worried they're going to die. So verse 13, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. And then look what's next. Because your prayer has been heard. And the reason I slow down right there is because I want you to receive that over your prayer. Your prayer has been heard. Look, your, your prayer for that deep desire, whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but I know God's not up in heaven with his ears plugged up, not listening. I know he hears you. I know he sees you. You know how I know that? The same author that's telling us this account, you go over to chapter 12, and what's he saying in chapter 12? That he, our God, knows the number of hairs on your head. He sees you. He knows you and he loves you. Next, look what the angel says will happen. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. And look at this verse. There will be joy and delight for you. This is a messenger from God saying, on behalf of God, there will be joy and delight for you. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. When it says he will go before him at the start of verse 17, he is John, him is Jesus. Not only is he going to give you a child, he's not only going to say yes, but he's going to do way more. A son filled with the Holy Spirit to bring Israel back to their God. Not just an answer to your prayer, Zechariah, but actually a fulfillment of one of God's promises to his people. That's Malachi 4, verse 5. Long after Elijah is dead and gone, God says this to the prophet Malachi. Look at this. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. How are you going to do that? Because Elijah's already dead. No, I'm going to send you another one. Prophet Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, he will, and look at this, because Luke is quoting it, Gabriel, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What's happening in the arrival of John is God is keeping his promises. And by the way, that's one of the themes we said of Christmas. God keeps his promises. We, we can go back further than Malachi. How about Genesis 3? Genesis 3.15, right after you see Adam and Eve sin, what happens? God lays a promise down to them that one day one of their offspring is going to crush the serpent on his head. He's going to defeat the enemy once and for all. And in Christmas, the arrival of that savior, of that victor, who is going to win 
our salvation against the enemy is going to win freedom from sin and death has come. God keeps his promises. That's the story of Christmas. And we talked a little bit about those promises last week. God's always with us. God's always working things for our good, bringing us to eternal glory. For those of us who are in Christ, we said trusting in God's promises, that's where hope comes from. Because to give you an example, God promises that he's with us if you're in Christ. He promises that he's with you now. So I'm going to choose to trust what he says instead of over how I feel. And because I choose his word over my feelings, I can have hope, even when my situation doesn't feel hopeful. Right? It's promises of God. I want you to see here in Gabriel's announcement that God's plan is greater than our desires. God had so much more in mind than just giving them a child. He was giving the world a second Elijah, a prophet to herald the coming of Christ. It's an amazing story that is going to unfold for John. John, the miracle baby, is going to become John, the prophet in the wilderness. He's going to become John, the baptizer, who even baptizes Jesus. And then he's, become, he's going to become John, the martyr. God was never being stingy towards Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's actually got way more. He's got way more than they could ask or imagine in how he answers their prayer. And I wonder if you believe that over the thing in your life, that desire. I told you, what is that deepest desire? Do you believe that? About, do you believe what God says that he could do more than you could ever ask or imagine about that? What if we closed our prayers over our deepest desires with Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3? To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think. Like, think what is the best case scenario with that deepest desire? He can do more than you could ask or think. According to the power that works in us, what the next verse says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. Do you believe he's able to heal you, to set you free, to provide a child, to warm a cold relationship or restore a broken one? And do you believe he's got more than just a simple yes for you? He's got a way that he's gonna get glory through your dependence on him for that. And that's what he's after. But are you willing to trust him even if you got to wait on him a long time? Even when he answers you differently than you expected. Look, here's the thing about these desires, guys. You realize this, when our deepest desire, whatever that thing is, when it is anything that desires for anything other than God, it will ultimately disappoint us. You know, right? Like we got a great example coming up in a couple of weeks. Couple of weeks we got Christmas, Christmas presents. Yeah, you know, everybody knows these are great. And then in a couple of months we have clutter, right? We just got junk laying around the house that was ooh shiny new Christmas present. Now it's just stuff because that thing didn't satisfy your child's every desire, right? Or you take Courtney and I are of the age and stage in life now where our Christmas present to each other is probably going to be a major appliance that we would need to buy for our home. Like how lame. We are adulting so hard in our lives right now. And you know what I know is that most likely know my luck this year or 2024 sometime, that major appliance is gonna need maintenance. How lame, right? Can that definitely can't be the source of my deepest desire. But what about maybe some more of the real stuff? Like what if your deepest desire is for a child? And then what if God says yes and gives you a child? There's gonna be great rejoicing, yes, but your child is not going to be Jesus. Sorry. That child is going to let you down so much. In fact, that child is going to straight up poop on you. 
Like they're actually going to do that to you. They're going to cost you tons of money. One day they're going to leave your house to go do their own thing, but then still call you for money. Right? Your child cannot be your deepest desire because while it's a good desire, your child will not satisfy your soul. They weren't made to do that. And in fact, listen, the reason we got so many helicopter parents afraid to let their little ones do anything is because they're afraid something's going to happen to their soul's deepest desire. You need to take that burden and put it on God and take it off your toddler. They weren't meant to hold that. I know for some of you, they're a little bit older. Your desire, a very good and holy desire is for a wayward child to come to faith. That is a good thing, a very good thing to keep before the Lord. But even a yes to that will not be enough for you. It'll be awesome. There'll be much rejoicing. But your child's salvation can't be yours. It won't be enough. Only God himself is enough. Will you trust his plan? Will you surrender that desire so you can receive joy in him? Or like Zechariah, are you digging in your heels in anger towards God in such a way that when he moves, <laughs> you actually are going to resist him. Watch Zechariah right here, verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man, and right here is how we know that Zechariah has been married a long time because he knows how to talk about his wife. Um, I assume she's listening. And my wife is well along in years, right? Never call your wife old. Um, verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Okay, now if you're like me and you remember back last week, wait a minute, Gabriel came to Mary. Didn't Mary have kind of similar response? Mary asked a similar question. And when she did, Gabriel gave her this loving answer. But here's the deal. Mary was also a teenage girl. Zechariah is an experienced priest. In other words, Zechariah's trust God muscles should be a lot stronger than Mary's. He should already know nothing will be impossible with God. Where's the faith that he's preached so many times? Here's what happens. God presses in on that deepest desire that thing that had gone unmet for decades. And he's been able to preach out here all the while starting to harbor some resentment towards God because the thing he's been preaching, he hadn't been experiencing. And he can't bring himself to believe it now that it's in front of him. And we know he doesn't believe. Gabriel says you don't believe. So God rebukes him, doesn't kill him, but rebukes him. It's like, all right, if that's the way you're going to talk, you're not going to talk for a while. So he walks out of the temple, unable to speak. And the people realize he's seen a vision and the next nine months, he's got to deal with the shame and frustration of being indignant towards God when God was blessing him. All those first baby moments, you think about it, if you've had a child or know somebody that's had a child, like those first baby moments where you're prepping the house or where the baby kicks for the first time or where you get to tell friends and family and he is stuck being silent. He's in his own head with his own thoughts the whole time and that is a long time to be in your own head. But God in the process is refining him giving him time. I think this is so cool. God is giving Zechariah time to experience the reverse of what he has experienced before. For years, Zechariah has been the one talking to God, praying for this, and he's felt like God is silent. And now God has spoken and forced Zechariah into silence. So maybe he could feel that silence doesn't really mean silence. That maybe as Zechariah stuck being silent, Zechariah is not uninterested 
No, no, he's very interested, and maybe Zechariah's been mistaking this apparent silence as silence when it hasn't been silence at all. Silence doesn't mean lack of care. Here's what I want you to see. For Zechariah and for us, God's discipline is mercy. Zechariah knows Proverbs 3 where God says he disciplines children he loves, and now he gets to experience it. He gets to live in it. And maybe, maybe if you'll pause and consider it, maybe you're experiencing God's discipline too. The point of God's discipline always is to draw the hearts of the one he is disciplining back to himself. Gabriel said, there will be joy and delight for you. And he just couldn't, couldn't believe it. He didn't want to believe it. Couldn't surrender to God saying yes to that deep desire. So God disciplined him, put him in a posture of humility for a time so that he could submit fully to God because God wanted his heart. Look, God's doing so many other things in this story. But for Zechariah, he wanted his heart and silencing him was God's merciful discipline on him. Elizabeth doesn't get an angel. She does get pregnant. And she says what Zechariah wishes he could have said. Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Wow. So beautiful. If you get familiar with your Bible, you'll see this common theme of barren women, God bringing pregnancy, bringing children to them later in life. Sarah and Isaac, Rachel and Joseph, Hannah and Samuel. It's a beautiful story of God always being with his people, even when they think, no, there's nothing left for me. When they think hope is almost so far gone, they don't want to hope anymore. God continues to provide. It's such a beautiful way he does this. What happens next is the scene we looked at last Sunday. Mary comes to Elizabeth. It's awesome. Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb. There's this beautiful celebration of God's faithfulness right in the doorway to Elizabeth's house. And then we get Mary's song. And after Mary's song, it's time for John to be born. And in John's birth, we see his parents finally fully surrender and rejoice. Look at verse 57. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She had a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. Just like Gabriel said, there'd be much rejoicing. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zachariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he'll be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And all were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak. And what did he do? Praise God. Fear came on all those who lived around them and all these things were being talked about all throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart saying, what then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. See, you know this, they've been married this long, been hoping for a child this long. They had plans. Even their relatives knew they had plans. They were going to have a son. We're going to have little Zachariah, little Z, little junior running around, right? Probably had plans for him to serve in the same line of work. They had plans and none of their plans involved a son named John. Like, wait, did you say Jonah? No, John. John. I want you to look into this moment, y'all, because the Lord gave them their deepest desire, sort of, Right? They have a child, but told them his way of saying yes would be their son would mean that their son would be about his heavenly father's plan, not their plan, even down to his name. 
If God says yes to you, he's saying yes for his glory, not yours. I mean, you think about what this child's gonna go through. He's gonna be a prophet. A prophet is not a desirable profession in scripture. A chosen one, yes, but they're gonna be usually outcast, rejected, hated, and often killed. And yet, they say yes. God says yes to them, but not the way they had planned. And here's my question. If God gives you a child, will you give that child back to him? Are you willing to do like Hannah does with Samuel? All right, Lord, you gave me the child. I give him back to you. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth do here. Are you willing to give that child back in service to God's glory instead of your own? What about a spouse that you've been praying for? Or are you going to put your soul's desire and need on to them when they were never meant to hold it? Are you, what about a job? What about a grade? What about a friend? You've been asking the Lord, you're lonely and need a friend. God gives you that friend. You're going to give that friend back in service to him. Whatever it is, will you put that back in service to God for his glory and not your own? In the final moment of surrender, Zechariah writes out, his name is John. The Lord opens his mouth and he uses his voice to rejoice, thus fulfilling what Gabriel said. And here's my point for you. If you will surrender and believe, you too will rejoice. But you got to surrender and believe. Like Zechariah, I know I haven't, you haven't some measure of wishing things were different. That deep longing, his led him away from the Lord for a time in unbelief. Because God hasn't done this, so I struggle to believe him. Tell me if that rings true to you. And the Lord in his mercy disciplined him. And my question is, where is that longing leading you? Is it leading you to dependence on the Lord or hardening your heart against him? Because I've been in ministry long enough to watch unmet desires do both. And all I can say is if he has stopped you somehow, if he has slowed you down any way like he did with Zechariah, man, praise him for that. Praise him for that slowdown. Praise him for that abrupt stop in your life because it's a call for you to return to him. That slowing down is discipline. He's given to you who he loves. So surrender to him and find hope. Because look, God doesn't need to say yes to you, but you need to say yes to God. He doesn't, he doesn't need to say yes to you. In fact, when he doesn't say yes to you, it is for your good. But you are created to say yes to him and to find your soul's true satisfaction in him. A good, holy, and loving father who knows what is best for you. And then maybe when you get there, that posture of surrender, maybe you'll be able to join Zechariah who prophesies verse 67. There's two prophecies in this next little bit. I'll read you 67 to 70, the first part of it. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Okay, what I love about what Zechariah is doing here is he's not first praising God for his own son being born. He's first praising God for another son that's going to be born. God has done what he long promised he would. Zechariah is connecting what's going on in his home with God's bigger plan. He's not talking first about John. He's talking about Jesus his first words, the horn of salvation is arriving. Jesus is coming. That's the big news. And what's happening in his house is to testify to the faithfulness of the one who's sending salvation to his people. 
When you get to a place of surrender to the Lord, your joy becomes more in him than in your situation. So whether your desires are met or not, you're able to praise him because your ultimate need is fulfilled. You see, this is why the apostle Paul can say, I've learned what it means to be content in times of plenty and in times of want. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I'm grounded not by the situation and circumstances, but by Christ. He is where my soul finds satisfaction and fulfillment. Here's the simplest way for me to say it, y'all. The response to this has got to be to trust God with your desires and your blessings, for he is faithful. With your desires and your blessings, for he is faithful. Zechariah goes from praising God, and then he speaks over his son the difficult assignment he would have. He says, and you, verse 76, you child will be called prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, the same knowledge that you have been given through God, through the scriptures, announced to you salvation for the forgiveness of your sins through Christ. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high, that's Jesus, will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The child grew up, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me say one little aside to parents. Your child, just like John and just like my four, they belong to God. What if we took time in our prayer lives to release them to God? God, help me shepherd them. And I confess y'all, this very convicting week for me in this space. I don't do this all the time. Help me to shepherd them towards your plan for their life and not my plan for their life. And then we need to speak God's good authority over them. I don't do this enough. Like I need to tell my kids, they belong to God. We need to tell you, you belong to God. And what's best for you is his plan, not yours or mine. That's how we raise up the next generation. Starts right in the home and the everyday. But here's what I can tell you that's so good about this. The idea, whether it's a child or whatever that unmet desire is, the idea of giving away that which you love and value most is a feeling that God is very familiar with. Because John 3 says that he gave his one and only son. Right? He gave his son to go and die for your sins and mine so that ever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I love that our God is a God who would never ask you to do something he's not willing to do. Whose love and faithfulness is made so evident by what he did for you. And so as you look at whatever it is you have in front of you, whatever this desire is, you can look back and see he loves you and he is faithful to his promises. The death and resurrection of Christ proves it. He loves you. And so as we're, what we're going to do is we're going to transition into a time of taking communion. And this week in particular is very powerful for me in this idea, because look, in taking communion here in a little bit, you're going to be past um, some elements. If you're a follower of Christ, you should take these elements. If you're not, you should let them pass by. But for all of us, what these elements represent, they represent symbolically, they represent Jesus. In order for you to hold these elements, your hands need to be empty. 
which means symbolically, maybe what you need to take some time to do, and I'm gonna give you some time to prayerfully do this, is you need to lay down whatever you've been hanging on to. You need to lay that down at the feet of Christ. Give that away to him, surrender, and then receive Christ himself, the fullness of joy. Let me pray for you and then our team's gonna come and lead us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for time to pause and remember your faithfulness. I pray for my brothers and sisters that the Lord is interrupting their lives. Father, would you help them to see your discipline as mercy? In fact, I want to give you a chance, all of our campuses, just to pause and lay that thing down before the Lord, whatever it is. Would you maybe just need to ask him, Lord, I want to put this before you. Would you be enough for me? If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to receive salvation this morning. That's the announcement John's whole life is going to be pointing towards to what Zechariah celebrates, that God has sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price for your sins. Your sins, my sins, they deserve death. Eternal separation from God. But God loved you so much that while you were a sinner, he sent his son to pay the price for your sins. And if you receive that payment, that death on your behalf, your sins can be forgiven. Did you receive that forgiveness? The gospel announces that he rose from the grave, giving you new life. We receive that new life. And when you take back to the Lord and set down whatever that desire is, God, as we're about to enter into a time of communion, ask for your mercy on our hearts, the mercy on our church. Would you be enough for us? Thank you for your kindness towards us who believe. We praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.